This is an edited version of a radio discussion Douglas Harding participated in in 1991 in Australia. The programme was Sunday Night Talks with John Cleary. Douglas, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. What experience did you have at the age of 33 which turned you from an architect to a builder of a quite different type? <laughs> well, I, I didn't cease to be an architect. Um, I continued with architecture, but I would say that my fascination was um, the, the, the who is this architect, you see, not uh, buildings, but the builder. Who is the architect who... Uh, who is the architect really and truly, essentially, in his own experience, at the center, as uh, John Wren Lewis puts it. And uh, then I made a discovery which uh, seems to me entirely obvious, sensible, universally available, uh, that at center I was not a thing. I was looking out of no thing, out of space, so to say, Certainly not out of two tiny peepholes in a meat ball, but like a great big window, you see, without a frame. This is a redefinition of the head you were talking about here, hence I guess the title of your first book. Yes. Well, uh, you see, a head has got, uh, can be viewed from inside and outside. Uh, a head viewed from uh, six feet away or five feet away, as you are doing now, John, you are viewing Douglas's head. I mean, you're stuck with that thing there that bearded object there, aren't you? That's the head viewed, viewed from where you are. And of course, what you're receiving there is genuinely a head. Very solid, two eyes and pink and all that stuff. And uh, why, that's my appearance. And if I might say, say, say to you, it's uh, nothing much to do with what I am at the moment. Indeed, it's your problem, John. Not mine, you see. My appearance, I give to you, uh, you do with it what you please, uh, you enjoy it or suffer from it, as the case may be. But you see, I have the, another view of this um, meatball, and it's the view from inside, and view from naught, mm. centimeters. And what I find here now is space for John's face, see? I find here the most <laughs> obviously empty space, capacity, which is awake to itself as capacity for the scene. I can't find here a solid lump of stuff, presumably dark, wet, sticky, eight inches across. Uh, 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 that's an absurd notion, which nobody really believes. That yes, each when we look out of ourselves... Why, we is, look out of the space, don't we? Yes, yes, yes. But I, am, I am not conscious of my brain, nor am I conscious of my mouth or my nose or my eyes, no. unless I touch them. No, uh, what you are conscious of, I mean, what you perceive, I suggest is the absence of all the stuff that you see in the mirror. So I, when I want to find my face, of course, I have a face and I have a head. And you all have to that. go and look for it in the mirror. But I have <laughs> the mirror. And so what I do, you see, is to look in my mirror and to see what I'm not like here. That's what I'm like for other folk. And they're welcome to that darn stuff. But what I'm looking out of, they're totally different. And the crazy thing is, we take that stuff in the mirror, where it belongs, that head stuff, and it creeps up our arms, so to say. We have to turn it round, because it's looking the wrong way, isn't it? And we have to turn it round, enlarge it because it's too small, and put it in our, on our shoulders, which is pure hallucination. And that face thing, that head thing over there in the mirror, is in the proper place. 
That's where You're I'm not in. denying its reality. No, 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 no. I'm simply saying where it is. Yes. And what we do, John, that's so absurd, is to take it from where it belongs, where it's a kind of pet or, you know, harmless, uh, and we bring it here and put it on our shoulders by a kind of hallucination, and it's then a parasite. And what do parasites do? They tie you out in the end, they kill you. And that is, that, that is very necessary to keep that thing in the right place out there. So we constantly look at ourselves as others see us, as a reflection. Well, that's it. And this is the human condition. But now we have also, of course, it's very proper to look at ourselves as we think other people see us. Robbie Burns. That's the human condition. That famous aphorism about it. Robert Indeed. Burns. Robbie Burns said something about that. But you see, you don't cease to look at yourself as you see yourself, in addition uh, to the way other people see you. You're saying it's a, it's a common sort of dilemma of late 20th century life that we constantly see ourselves as others, as we would have others see us, well, rather than as we are ourselves. I think this is the, the perennial human condition since we became human. Mm. It's not 20th century a thing only. So how it? damaging is that to us? I mean, what's wrong with no, it? No, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, and it's absolutely our ticket to being human. The thing is, do we, while we are looking at ourselves from six feet away as others might see us or in the mirror or in pictures of ourselves do we at the same time give priority to what we look like look like to ourselves at a distance of naught centimeters right where we are what i'm looking out of mm. that most incredibly neglected country in the whole world is what is the center of my universe what i'm looking out of and i hallucinate if i'm crazy I hallucinate a meatball to look out of here. Nobody believes that is crazy. But when I dare to look at what I'm looking out of, I find uh, the wide, the big country, endless space, not limited, clear, empty of itself, full of the world. And it's Im imperishable. The space, this awareness is imperishable. When I take that thing from the mirror and bring it here, it's crazy, and it's a kind of suicide. Because we put a, a limiting box around well, yes. our perceptions. But it's, it's a suicide, isn't it? Because that thing, I've been looking at that thing for 82 years, and it's been dying for 82 years. It suffers from a terminal disease called life, that thing I see in the mirror. But what I see here, well, there's nothing there to perish. So you're saying we should look at ourselves from the perspective of our consciousness, not from the perspective of our physical entity. Well, I mean, I'm saying we do look from out from there, John. It's not yeah. a case of changing anything. Yeah. I think we're all living from this place, and I think we're all doing it right. All that's happened is we've fallen into a kind of socially induced coma. <laughs> and what is the liberation that's promised by a change in perspective, by a little lateral thinking? Well, I think this is perhaps more like lateral looking than lateral thinking. Because, you see, I don't think this. I don't profess to understand it. I don't profess to feel it. I see it. Well, what is the result of this? Everything has changed. I mean, for example, it seems to me the world runs on confrontation, head-on collision, face-to-face -face thing. And I'm uh, looking at you now at a similar thing, to what I'm looking at. I'm looking at you out of a, of a box, as another box, in a symmetrical relationship, and that's nonsense. I'm not. I'm busted wide open for you now. Not because I'm a nice Douglas or nice person. I'm built that way. I really have vanished in your favor. And it's, it's so incredibly obvious that I'm nothing in your way. I'm Johned, and you're Douglas, and we're trading faces, I guess. 
And that's so beautiful. And it's, what shall I say, not yet loving, but it's, uh, shall I say, uh, the, the setup in which love can be given a chance. That leads almost naturally to the next question. You've just written a book called Heading Off Stress, which it seems must have something to do with interpersonal relationships and the nature of the society we live in. Indeed. Indeed. And, uh, I mean, uh, I'm not saying stress is uh, avoidable. I'm not saying it is undesirable. Stress in the right place is what the world runs on, like cars run on petrol. What I do is to take, if I'm not careful, I take stress from where it belongs in the things out there, hallucinate a thing here which is stressful, because all things are stressful, and I lose my inner tranquility and freedom from stress. What I'm looking out of cannot be stressed, because there's no thing here to be stressed. You can't stress great space. Consciousness is unstressable. It's like John being the eye of the storm. In fact, it is the eye of the storm. Each of us, if she or he is awake, is seeing and coming from this place which is which has no thing in it to be stressed, which is aware capacity. You're saying something which is akin to, well, rings bells with transcendent experience in, in religion, whether it be in Buddhism or spiritualism, in mystical side of Christianity, the same, the still point, to use a phrase that's been often associated with Buddhism. I remember once having the privilege of spending a day or two with an English composer, a rather minor English composer, who's quite famous in England as a composer of, of, of brass music, um, Eric Ball, who said, and he, Eric was a bit of a mystic, and he said of music that even in the most rapidly flowing piece, there was a still centre, which was the core of that music, which was its essence, which was, was absolutely diamond hard and still in the centre of that music. Mm. So you are, saying, you are making a comment which, which is picked up from, the expe- from experiences of a wide number of people or is something that, uh, that is unique to the perception you are having? Well... See, it's not for picking up from other people or from books or ideas, is it? The only way genuinely to experience it is from where you are. It's a, it's a first-hand experience of being first-person singular. Now, uh, then, having seen this, which is embarrassingly obvious, and totally obvious, really, how could we miss it? Having seen that what I'm look, looking out of is space for you, Having seen that, and then perhaps wondering, you know, what's happened, because instead of a meatball, one finds this capacity, then one goes with delight and comfort and joy to, the indeed, the great scriptures of the world. And I was a student, indeed, teacher of comparative religion. And uh, for me, the heart, the heart of the heart of all the great religions says, indeed, this. That's, indeed, what they have to say at the very core of themselves. Uh, which is that who you really, really, really are is not a product of the world and or a thing at all, but the no-thing, uh, which is aware of itself as no-thing, from which everything comes. What happened when you were 33? It was the first question I asked, and you haven't answered it. What, what was it that gave you the spark to, to embark on this quest? I think two things, John. First being such a terrible mess, great help. 
I've got to find some answer to mess. I'm really desperately self-conscious, uh, morbidly shy, self-conscious, not a shrinking violet sort of nice uh, self-consciousness or shyness, but a kind of aggressive shyness. Do you know what I mean? That horrible thing, ghastly, you know, made you so rude and socially inadequate, first of all that. And, but secondly, what I do treasure in my life, uh, and I think I've had it from an early age, is a rather unusual determination to discover who, who, who has happened, I've happened. And I have incredible delight and surprise at having actually occurred. Was and it I'm, a physical event? I'm course. damned if I'm going to live and die without having, uh, having had a look for myself at what has occurred. Now, as 33, I suppose things came, if I may say, to a no-head. <laughs> I guess it got so awful in a way, and my curiosity got so tremendous that I dared to have a look at what was obvious and here, absolutely obvious. Instead of a head, I had the universe, which is good trading. Indeed. But, but what was it? What physically was the event that triggered this for you? Was it, was it a crisis in your life? No. I, I, in fact, I have to confess that uh, I wrote that thing up, rather. And when uh, I said in the book there that this was the, my rebirth day, the first time in my life when I really clearly saw this, on reflection, I doubt the truth of that. I, that's not true. It really connected up with all sorts of experiences earlier in life. And I think anyone who sees this clearly says, aha, of course, that's it. And it's not the first time. When you see it, it connects up with all sorts of previews you had of it. And so that thing in the Himalayas really was a bit of a nonsense. And I do say later in the book how it's most misleading because it suggests that this is a Himalayan, wonderful, mystical experience. I say, and later in the book, it's much more appropriate to happen in a public laboratory, because it's so darned ordinary, but very refreshing, or life-changing, immensely so, but at the same time, common or garden or ordinary. Yes. It does touch on the esoteric, though, because what you're saying is also what is said by people who've gone through situations in extremis, like the near-death experience. That people who come from that experience say they, they are able to almost, they use a different way of describing it, sort of stand apart from themselves and have a perspective on the world which opens the world up to them. Um, yes. There are lots of ways. But they're almost saying the same thing. And there's a quote about Bishop uh, Desmond Tutu in uh, last month's Life magazine was asked the cover question, who is God? And Tutu said, a, a shining blackness in the center. That's rather good, isn't it? It's a bit like that, yes. But so obvious, you see. What I can't get over is the obviousness of the fact that I'm not looking out of a thing. At this moment, I'm busted, wide open for you. Not because I'm a nice chap, but because I'm looking in the right place. And this is, you see, when we talk about near-death experiences, who's had those? A, a favored few, like John Lynn Lewis. I haven't had a, a near-death experience, but I've had what will do perfectly well instead of it, which is a, 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 not a near-death experience, but what I call a PDE. It was a, a, a present-death experience, which is the death of the idea that here I'm living out of a lump of stuff. And in a way, this is a kind of death 
of the, the stupid idea that I'm looking out of a thing here that can die. Yes, and what in fact you are is, is consciousness that is carried in a certain vehicle, but what you essentially are is consciousness. Indeed. And it's limitless. Precisely. Yeah. This could open up all sorts of realms too. It takes us into, into really, if you like, sort of fringe esoteric areas. It, it takes us into, into questioning really the nature of, of the physical entity. I mean, do, do you take the step into making comment or thinking about what is existence, what the nature of his existence is? This is quite central in my interest, my life. Uh, it, is, it really is the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, the mystery of existence. What, why should there be anything at all? It strikes me as most irregular and peculiar that anything should exist at all. And uh, the miracle of uh, consciousness here, call it what you like, call it God if you like, the miracle of its own self-creation for no reason. It's not what consciousness is so much as that consciousness is. And this miracle of the self-origination of awareness or God is something which is a constant delight and fascination for me. One of the... Um one of the fascinations of sort of contemporary questioning about religious um, experience or the nature of religion is that it, it offers connections to a systematic view of the universe, whether yeah. it be quantum physics or whatever, on the one hand. On the other hand, you do have sort of irrational dabbling with, with uh, well, whatever turns you on, if it fulfills you, it's it. Yes. But you are saying that at the centre of, of what you are talking about is simple, practical a common sense observation, which is quite consistent with every other observation in the physical world. Absolutely. You're not talking about some esoteric experience. No, no, I'm talking about being, all I'm talking about, John, is being the way we are and stop pretending. Uh, uh, to stop pretending is the whole thing and just be transparently honest about what we experience ourselves to be. And when, I, when we do that, we stop hallucinating to social requirements, what is not in fact there, why I think everything has changed. Everything we do from who we really, really, really are from this aware space, I think I would say is very much better done than when it is done from hallucinated meatball, if you were excuse the expression here. Okay, we're, we're talking with Douglas Harding on Sunday Night Talk. John Cleary with you. You're invited to join us in a few moments, but before we do that, I'd like to, to ask you just to describe some of the exercises that you've laid down to help us along this path of, of altering our perspective or our view. And nothing would give me a greater delight, John. Um, I can describe uh, two or three of them very easily. Uh, one of them is to sit in your car and tell the truth. And when you sit in your car and drive your car and tell the truth and don't hallucinate and see what you see instead of what you don't see, why you know, Australia dances, everything is on the move. The telegraph poles and the trees and the houses are moving. Now, who do you think can move Australia? Not that little guy, Douglas, in the mirror, who I really, really, really am, is, uh, is really the unmoved mover of the world. That's so awesome, isn't it? And we really tell the truth there. I get in my Land Rover. Am I driving the Land Rover? Or am I driving the land? Douglas can't drive the land. 
who I am can, does. There's one example. Do you like another now? Please. Look, uh, when you put on your glasses, your sunglasses, or even just look now, how many eyes are you looking out of? You see, I mean, your optician thinks you've got two, of course, and you seem to have two in the mirror. But what are you looking out of? And we put on our, take our glasses and put them on. If we don't have glasses, we can make up a pair with our fingers, so to say, and put them on, and we see what we're looking out of is an enormous, great, big window. And this window has no, no frame and no glass, and it can't be broken, John. That's the thing. It's unbreakable, non-biodegradable, everlasting. And, you know, they talk about the opening of the third eye. Well, for my money, this is the opening of the third eye, and I never looked out of anything else. So you define a series of analogies just to help us get this Not analogies, John. I, 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 I rather resist that one. This is plain, simple, common or garden looking to see. And not an analogy, it's a direct perception with, with respect. Where do you take it from? I mean, do you, do you encourage people to practice this? Yes, I do. And I say, seeing this is lovely, and you can't do it wrong. The one thing in, in life I can't do wrong is to see who I am. It's an all-or-nothing experience when I look at what I'm looking out of. It's perfect. You do it the way the Buddha did it and Jesus Christ did it and so on. You can't do that wrong. But to see this on one occasion is just the beginning of the spiritual adventure. I say I have to go on coming back to the place I never left until it's natural to be natural, natural to be there, looking out of that place. And with some people, it might take years, and I was a slow coach, but I think some people, it's a, a style, and it could become uh, uh, your style in a much shorter time than you imagine, provided you're really fascinated and interested. And so that is the kind of second stage, and the third stage, which is uh, perhaps even more important, is that you trust, not that little guy in the mirror, I cease to trust Douglas to run my life because Douglas is sure to muck it up. That little guy in the mirror is incapable of running my life, really. But who I really, really, really am here, where I'm coming from, this awakeness, awareness, which is not Douglas's, belongs to everybody. If I lean back on that, John, I, I find that everything I do is done more authentically. It's no longer quite so, not no longer phony. It's done better, with more pleasure and more effect. Douglas Harding, it's great to have you with us. And now, in just a moment, we're going to be joined by Claire Dunn and John Ren Lewis. Douglas, is it why is it that some people can just snap into something and others take take a long time? You said you were a bit of a slow coach. Is there some difficulty in? In our basic way of looking at the world, are we so conditioned to looking at the world in a certain way that to just accept that consciousness itself is all we need to have in perceiving the world is a really difficult thing? I think there's a very great difficulty, John, because we're all conditioned not to see what we see, but see what we're told to see, what, what it is uh, policy to see, what pays to see. And uh, uh, to see where we're coming from is almost uh, wicked, I mean, it's forbidden. And it's a, it's a, it's a place which we consistently overlook uh, by reason of language and training and conditioning. We overlook this place. But once, um, once uh, uh, I meet someone and uh, I am in a, a so-called face-to-face position with them, 
I, I, I mean, I've never nowadays had any problems. So what do you say to Claire? I say to Claire <laughs> that um, we're side by side now, Claire, and which is not very good for this uh, investigation. But if I were to turn to Claire, which I'm now doing with great pleasure, she, you know, that view takes years off me. <laughs> it's marvelous. It's marvelous. Well, here I am, uh, uh, full of Claire. I'm Claire, to clarify, or Claire. <laughs> and, and Douglas is, I promise you, Claire, that this, uh, this thing that you're looking at, this bearded uh, character, is your, is your problem, and I, I don't have it here. Here, I just experience myself like an idiot. I mean, it's not a feeling, it's not a thought. I see myself busted wide open for you, and there you are filling my space, and I'm space for you, and we're not face to face except for John. For John, we're face to face. For you and me, we are trading faces much to my relief and benefit. <laughs> now, isn't that true for you? I mean, when you don't think about it, just look. You're the one that can tell me how my beard lights up under this light. I have no clue. I can, I can give you enormous amount of information about your face, which is entirely you know, hidden from you. Why? Because I've got your face in its fullness, its color, and its beauty. It's, it's all mine. And you are equally seized to Douglas's face, and we are trading those darn things. And this is, this is non-confrontation. It's always like this. And may I suggest, Peg, you've never been face to face with anyone in your whole darn life. It's always been face to face. Am I right? Yeah. That's marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's time to take one call before the news, just one. I'd like to put a couple of questions to uh, Mr Harding. Um, I'm, just by way of coincidence, 33, but I think he's already mentioned at that, that point is... Uh, um, is uh, a little bit irrelevant, um, but I wonder if Mr. Harding um, found himself at that age um, increasingly at odds with uh, the world, and um, certainly that's my experience at the moment. That's why I'm seeking a different way of uh, of uh, defining self. Hmm. And, um, uh, the other point that I'd like to uh, have Mr. Harding address is. Um, the um, uh, the way in which uh, the headless concept, um, uh, uh, how it uh, how it uh, diminishes um, uh, guilt and and stress, and as a third point, getting value here, as a third point, um, where the rest of the body fits into the concept, is it just a support mechanism for the conscious consciousness or? Uh, how does the, the rest of the the, the, uh, the body fit into the concept? Yes, is the rest of the body totally negative or does it have some positive dimensions other than just keeping the, uh, the consciousness functioning? Uh, Thanks, Ross, for that. Uh, well, Douglas? A quick, a quick answer, Ross, uh, to these things as far as I'm able to uh, answer them. Uh, on the um, business of uh, being around 30, well, it is true, isn't it, that um, in the case of many people's lives, it is... Uh, a critical time, and I think it was in my in my case. Why it was a critical time, I'm not sure. It was a, not a special crisis in my life. I, I just don't understand why. But it was around that age, which I think is something to be quite pleased about. Um, your second point, uh, how you, you asked how the concept of headlessness, uh, if I may coin a phrase, uh, it helps with guilt and stress. Well, first, Ross, and uh, may I just... Uh, there was a break here in the recording.
What does it do to living in or through the meat box? Well, <clears throat> um, I think I'd first of all say, Claire, that uh, these extraordinary experiences of yours and John's have been more or less denied to me. I'm a kind of ordinary guy who experiences only the obvious, really. I'm not a very mystical person. Really, um, a pretty ordinary down-to-earth bloke who really just finds in what is ordinary and what is absolutely now the, the, the revelation of, of the blessedness that underlies things. Uh, it seems to me that the what I need, uh, John, is given to me now in fullness. If only I will wake up to what is given at this moment, uh, uh, not uh, relying on anything I've experienced in the past or hope to experience in the future, but what is given at this time. And what is given at this time, I find, is that one is this aware capacity which is indeed empty uh, of any Douglas Marks and is full this time of John there at the microphone. Uh, I'm talking visually or, or in terms of um, audio, audition, why it's uh, hearing, what these sounds come out, and so forth. All sorts of sensations and perceptions, all of them contained in this void, in the space which I am. And that is free of Douglas at this time. So you're just experiencing what is around you and available to you? At this moment. Yeah. And it seems to me in this is blessedness. Yeah. Because everything, John, is then the opposite of what I had been told. <laughs> and it's your turn. I, some more phone calls. Tony in Brisbane. Hello, Tony. Oh, hello. Is Douglas there? Hello, hello, right. um, Tony. Hello, Douglas. Um, I'd like to share with you an exercise, you see... I started doing this exercise about 12 years ago because I, I took a different starting point from you. I decided that in terms of pure consciousness, thought was the enemy, so I practiced switching off thought. And I've got to the stage now where at will I can just switch off. And in that state, I can practice a total body meditation where I can move without thinking, carry on a normal conversation without thinking, um, get healing plants from the bush without thinking, things like that. Now, if you like, we can try an experiment. Would you like to switch off? Can you switch off? The switch off thinking, do you mean, if you like. Tony? Can I switch off thinking? Well, uh, briefly, yes. Uh, briefly, but um, uh, uh, you see, I find, and I don't know whether you would agree, that it's not necessary, really, to suppress thinking or... Uh, the mind, in order, in order, Got me going. Tony, to uh, discover uh, who one really is, uh, which is a space for, capacity for, these thoughts that come and go, these feelings that come and go, and so on. So I find that um, maybe, uh, in a way, thinking does die down, becomes less troublesome when one sees who one is. I think it is really a mistake for me, anyway, to think that, uh, that thinking uh, is incompatible with seeing who I am. And I find, quite the contrary, I find that here I'm space for the thought. At this moment, I am the silence, if you wish, if you wish uh, that these words are coming from. I am the no-thing from which these things are coming, and uh, the no-mind from which this mind is operating. So it seems to me that uh, thought is compatible with um, awakeness, to the one here who is beyond thought. 
Would you agree? I would agree. Um, in fact, I started off with that exercise, but now I find it just comes naturally, and I, I, I'm fully familiar. In fact, I could say I experienced what you've described tonight. Well, that's super, Tony. That's lovely. Well, thanks for that, Tony. We must push on. Lots of other people calling, and it is, I know, difficult for some of you to get through to us tonight. We've only got three lines instead of the usual five, so bear with us. To Eliza in Melbourne. Good evening, Eliza. Hi there. Um, I just was wondering about the idea of what people are talking about with um, of getting into that kind of space, that external space, or in fact the internal space, and wondering um, on the people's thoughts about firstly meditation and secondly about um, just ha having the kind of lifestyle which enables you to um, experience different things from different perspectives to actually um, be able to kind of open your mind out of that one-track lifestyle that most people live? Yes, well, <laughs> uh, if I may answer that question briefly, Eliza, a marvellous one. What is the relationship of what I'm up to here to meditation? And if by meditation you mean what I mean, which is simply uh, being awake, mindful, if we mean, in the Buddhists, I think when they talk about meditation, have this in mind, that is not to be, as they say, out to lunch, but to be together with what's going on and uh, attentive to what's going on. You see, we have to pay attention. Mindfulness is the name of the game. And I say when I'm mindful, even if I'm driving a car, walking down the street, washing the dishes, that is meditation. And I say that meditation is not primarily sitting with folded legs, you know, and tied in a granny knot in, in, a, in a place dedicated to meditation. That's fine. That's fine. But I think it could and should lead on to mindfulness in every situation in life. That, for me, is meditation. Uh, that's the first half of your question. And the other was about results, was it? The other one is, is sort of about, I suppose, the experience of um, or, um, just living life in such a way that you do experience a similar situation from many different viewpoints. Yes. You can actually think about things in a in a more holistic way, and I suppose that's what I see our society doesn't do anymore. Well, I suppose maybe never did is um allow people that opportunity to experience things from um so many viewpoints that that they actually free themselves to be able to understand. Well, it seems to me that my task uh, is extremely simple, and that is n n not to overlook the looker. Yeah. You see, here we are, you at the center of your universe. It's so easy to overlook that center. And when we turn our attention around and really gaze in, we find what I call the country of everlasting clearness. And it's a marvelous place you're coming from. And everything done from that place, from awareness of that place, I say is so much better done with more pleasure and more effect. And this is meditation working out in action in ordinary life, and it's extremely practical, mm. appropriate to every situation. Marvellous uh, question. Thank you. Thanks, Eliza. Just by way of uh, inquiry there, do you, do you have to come in from this, this experience at large to do specific tasks like writing an article or writing mm. a book? Mm. Well, yes, I do. And uh, writing a book, I'm always writing a book, the most incredibly difficult and exciting job, and I find it extremely hard, and I get stuck. And uh, how, I, how do I get unstuck? It, 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 I it, it refer the business to who I really am here. This means setting out in array the problems without an itching to solve those problems. 
set them out in the in array, the pros and the cons, and go blank, go idiotic, and see what comes up. This may mean sleeping on it, usually does. But then perhaps when I'm doing another job, I've referred the problem to who I really, really, really am here, and up comes the answer. And really, John, it's about trust. Trust in who I am. Trust who I am to come up with the essential answers in my life, and it does. Mm. Uh, okay, let's go to Melbourne. First time to Melbourne this evening to uh, to Tarvi. Hi there. Did I get your name right? Hello? Yeah, Tarvi? Hello, I appreciate this opportunity to voice my opinion there because I had to throw a spare in the works. Um, to uh, philosopher Douglas Harding, about uh, his illusions and hallucinations that uh, you have claimed, um, I believe to be the result of dogmatic scepticism, which I find a most irritating view. I feel that uh, it has no place in philosophy, my philosophy that I've adopted and developed, or any philosophy. It assumes that what cannot be proven is therefore false. Uh, this results in a paradox since both the positive and negative case can, can lack proof. For example, um, neither the existence nor the non-existence of the chair you are sitting on can be proven. Right. Well, do I attempt to say something here, John? You see, while I think that these uh, questions are certainly valid for you, and uh, I think I follow them a bit, I, I find everything is so much simpler in my life than this. All I've got to do in order to run my life, I think, is to stop conceptualizing, stop uh, really, this flow of abstractions and ideas and con concepts, and really just lean back on who I am and find out what I do. See, the answer to my problem is, I find, whatever it is, intellectual, practical, practical or anything, is just to simply see who has the problem. I find that really works. Talking about such abstractions which can't be proved, what's the point, really? Um, I mean, my my, uh, my alternative is Peranian scepticism, where where proof cannot be provided or um, judgment must be suspended. Well, what I'm up to, I would really honestly describe as radical scepticism. I mean, I was told all sorts of darn things which I find not to be true. I was told that the center of my world was a lump of stuff. I was skeptical about that. I was told I was looking out of two eyes. I was skeptical about that. It really, my whole life, um, since I tumbled to the obvious truth, has been this kind of systematic skepticism in favor of what is given. And I, I, I doubt what I'm told, John, and I'm skeptical about what I'm told, deeply skeptical, and I trust what is given. So in, to that extent, I really agree with our friend here. You're on Sunday Night Talk on ABC Radio right around Australia. John Cleary with you, and my guests this evening, Douglas. Hi. Um, uh, just um, picking up on what you've been talking about, if you might look at it, perhaps, you know, you're talking about um, being a deceit. And one wonders if perhaps one might look at it just as a form of growing up in the world that you live in. Growing up? Yes. Yes, Paul, it is growing up. And I think until we see who we are, we're cases of arrested development. Yes. We really are. I think we're immature 
uh, when we get stuck in the second stage of our life. You see, the first stage is that we experience ourselves as infants, space for the world to happen in. The second stage is we get condensed into an imaginary thing at the center of our life. I call it a meatball. And if we get stuck there, we are cases of arrested development. The thing is to go on to stage three, where you're busted wide open, you become as a child again, empty for the world to happen in. And can I ask both of you, does that remain a constant state once you've arrived at it, or is it something that you come in and out of? Um, shall I um, answer that one? I'd love both of you to answer. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> shall I begin by answering? John will have something to say. Well, I think it, it, it is a constant state here, but not always with equal brilliance. Sometimes it's a kind of... Uh, implied it's kind of in the background uh, one is has not lost touch Claire with who one is one is centered but one isn't really concentrating on the center uh, uh, it's taken for granted a bit without losing it at other times extremely sharp but I would say in my case anyway uh, nowadays it's not lost I regularly walk home from the ABC studios here in King's Cross on a Sunday night through King's Cross. And uh, I've been doing that for six or seven years. And you get used to walking through King's Cross. I mean, you either shut it out or you're accept <laughs> accepted. It's a place where, where Australia is, is at its most turbulent, I think, physically. And I was walking through there one day not long ago. And I'm talking about something very ordinary. I'm not talking about a mystical experience but my perception of what I was doing and where I was changed. That is, instead of experiencing King's Cross come towards me and the things, and I'd leave some things out and I'd look at some things and not, and not look at others, all of a sudden the whole thing opened out and there I was experiencing everything around me from the furthest car away down the street to the things that were immediately around me. And it was as if a whole series of blinkers had, had fallen away and and I was experiencing something in, in sort of 3D, whereas previously I'd been seeing it as a sort of monochrome of, of things that moved at me. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Have I, have I sort of glimpsed the edge of it? I think this is certainly a feature, John, of, of what um, I, I find, you know. That you, you know uh, people talk about uh, tunnel vision. I'm not accusing you of tunnel vision. But um, sick people do experience a very narrow world and lose sight of the periphery of the world, don't they? And I think insofar as we come to our senses and even see who we really are at the center, I, I do find that um, the angle of vision widens and one be becomes more and more conscious of the periphery. One, one's um, angle of vision uh, widens from perhaps five degrees to something like 160 degrees. And so one is wide-eyed in a sense, you know. The single eye is wide-eyed. And I think little children, you see, have got this wide-eyed, this wide-eyed um, uh, view of the world, and it even shines out of their faces. And I'd say that this is an experience of the width of the world and, and one's vision, and it's a marvelous, I think, uh, return to the childhood vision of the real world, the world as we really see it. Uh, I congratulate you on that. I think it's a part of what I'm up to. But what I'm up to is primarily 
not the world, not looking at the world, but looking at where the world is being received here. And when I, when I attend to what I'm looking out of, which is space for, for that wide world, why I'm looking out of wide, wide, wide space at a wide, wide, wide world. But the emphasis is the in-looking, because we've done all that out-looking, you know, till the cows come home, we're always looking outwards, uh, 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 helpfully, and hopefully we're looking outwards, otherwise we'd be creamed on the highway, wouldn't we? <laughs> so uh, 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 I'm saying, let me look at who I am and I experience indeed what you've described so nicely. Well, would you say that it made a difference? Supposing you were in that state now, would it make a difference? Well, that was the interesting thing about the experience, because as soon as I'd had it, it felt a little euphoric. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yes. I mean, that was why I, that's why I remember it. Yeah. I mean, it happened six months ago, but I've been carrying it around with me. So I thought, that, that's interesting. Now, that only rings a bell when you explain what you explained to yes. us. But, John, you see, I, I suggest, as John, uh, the other John suggests, that it really is available now. Mm. It's not archaeology, really. Uh, primarily, it's available now. And all we've got to do is tell it like it is. And uh, when, I'm, when I say that, I mean the double-looking, looking out at what you're looking at and, and at the same time looking in at what you're looking out of. And both are wide and... Uh, the world is differently seen from this clarity here. When we hallucinate a thing to see it out of, then the world is obscured. And we see a real world, and I think a world full of blessings, when we see it from who we really, really, really are. And that's why I like that word blessing rather than your word euphoric, because you see, that's the sound. Yes, there are moments of euphoria. But uh, that makes it sound like a peak. And when you're on a yeah. peak, you've got to come down. Mm. Whereas this blessing is, is, is the ground of everything. And that, that was a, so in that sense, you can't leave it. Yeah. And that's the great that's the great. But the only way you can do is forget it. You can't leave it. But if we were all being it as it is, what kind of a world would, be, would we be living in? I don't think there's much danger of that. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of the less um, threatening uh, situations, isn't it? Um, I, 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 but I would suggest that this is the next development in man, hopefully. Well, that's and what it I'm won't, asking. It won't produce the utopia, hmm. because it seems to me the world is just founded on the clash of opposites. I mean, beauty and ugliness, love, hate, all those things, the negative and the positive, are what makes the world run, and this stressful thing. And uh, I've been seeing um, this for a rather long time, and Douglas is still a pretty crummy character. <laughs> and I've, well, he is, you see, and I, I need to see who I am in order to forgive him for being what he is. And I have friends who equally have been seeing uh, who they are for a long time and trusting it. And they are, they are so-so, you see. I think they're very beautiful, and I love them very much. But this is not a recipe for being perfect as a human being. You are perfect, Claire, already, Claire, as who you really, really, really are. But I doubt whether Claire, you see in the mirror, and other people experience, are exactly quite perfect yet. I would put it like this. The best thing I can do for Douglas, crummy character though he is, is to tell the truth to myself about who I am. Because some of the perfection of who I really, really, really am, some of the perfume of who I really, really am, I think, will rub off onto Douglas and make him less, uh, make him more bearable, really. Infuses him. Infuses him in his life, does it? Hmm? It infuses him in his life? 
Well, there something? Well, I, I would say that uh, his, uh, his defects remain, his basic defects remain. But um, this is not a way of producing wonderful, wonderful human beings. It's a way of becoming, I think, uh, really more loving, more natural, more effective in life. Uh, to the limit uh, of one's uh, natural capacity. All you see I'm saying is let's be who we are. Let's be natural. Not be funny, not be peculiar, not be mystical, not even be religious, but be honest about what's given at this time. Who I really, really am at this time, what I'm looking out of and what I'm looking at. And it's so obvious, as John says, incredibly obvious. What I have to say to myself, I think, when I feel morally outraged, which I rather often do, <laughs> that it's my, it's me, it's me. I'm, I'm really involved in that. Everything that people do that is outrageous is really, really my responsibility. In some way, I'm responsible for it. Um, every, every horror that humans uh, perpetrate is, um, in a way, uh, Douglas's. Uh, Douglas has a potentiality, the tendency to do that. I can wash my hands of nobody. But at the same time, I realize that these uh, people who, ha who behave in the most ghastly fashion, why, they are at core myself. They're perfect at core. I am them. And in a way, I'm guilty of what they do. You know, one has to take on, it seems to me, the sins of the world in order to find the forgiveness that underlies those sins. Time for more calls. To uh, Laurie in Rockhampton. Welcome, Laurie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was just uh, wondering if I could ask your panel if they've got any advice for uh, someone who's looking for that calm centre. Well, perhaps we could uh, briefly go through it to, uh, to Douglas first. And uh, could you just recapitulate uh, well, that question, uh, John? Laurie was looking for some advice to, to find that calm center. Well, I would say, Laurie, the only thing is necessary is to look in the place where it is. I mean, turning your attention around at this time uh, to what you're looking out of, the center is where you're operating from. You never operate from anywhere else. You don't have to seek it all over the shop. All you do is to turn your attention around now, at this moment, and look at what you're looking out of. You're not looking out two eyes. Oh, Lord, it's really one great window. That is your center. It's unavoidable, you know. And when you want to see this, you look in the place where it hangs out, or rather hangs in. The recording ended here. You'll find more audio of Douglas Harding elsewhere on this podcast.